You are listening to the You Are a Lawyer podcast. I am the podcast host, Kyla Denanyo, a 2015 law school graduate. This podcast was created to share the experiences and successes of law school graduates who created their own paths to career success. In episode 32, I am speaking with a judge advocate and lawyer. This guest is a military attorney in the United States Army Reserves and a city prosecutor. Based in New Orleans, Louisiana, today's guest is Vernon W. Thomas. Welcome to the podcast, Vernon. How are you, Kyla? I'm excited to be here. Thanks. I'm doing well. Would you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? My name is Vernon W. Thomas. I am an attorney. I am an entrepreneur. And I'm also a United States Army JAG Corps Reserve officer, having done multiple stints on active duty and uh, a plethora of other things as well. And where are you from? I'm originally from New Orleans, Louisiana. I was born here, raised here. I went to undergrad at Dillard University, and then I went to law school at Southern University Law School in the class of 2009. Okay. And what did you study in undergrad? I was actually a fine arts major in English, and my original dream when I was coming up was to be an 11th grade English teacher. I don't know why I picked 11th grade, but I wanted to do 11th grade. And my father came to me, God rest his soul, he passed in November of 2016. But he came to me and told me that, look, you're, you're very good at analyzing words and you like to read. I wanted to law school to probably be the best thing for you because you know, an English teacher is a very noble profession, but you can do something different. Okay. Why do you think your father wanted you to be an attorney? So educational excellence was always in my house. My mother has a PhD in psychology. My father was from the Midwest, like you, I'm told, and is an attorney from the great state of Ohio. And it just was part of the course to do something in the profession world and or the education world. And so myself and my brother, Hunter F. Thomas, who also is a part of my father's firm, the law office of Vernon P. Thomas, we looked to him to, A, as a role model, B, as an individual that we wanted to emulate. And being a lawyer, it kind of flowed naturally. Okay. So your father was an attorney as well? was. He was. Okay. His office is in New Orleans. I, myself, and my brother Hunter have inherited his firm. We did a lot of complex litigation, mass tort, personal injury, and wills, estates, and trusts. And then I combined my practice, which was primarily criminal defense and a little bit of personal injury, with his. And so I also have an office in Baton Rouge. All right. So your father said that you were analytical, so law school would probably be a natural course for you. Did you find that you were able to use those analytical skills while you were at Southern University? I felt that Southern University gave me the best mix of not only legal knowledge from a theoretical standpoint, but a practical application because 90% of what I do is evaluating cases and or clients. In my criminal practice, I have to evaluate not only just your case from an analytical standpoint of applying the case law, either in my prosecution capacity or my defense capacity to your case, but also I have to analyze whether or not you as a client are telling me what I need to know in order to best represent you. And so law school provided me an opportunity to not only get a thorough background in case law in a bunch of different areas of law, but also understand the individuals that I'm going to be representing. And so I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Okay. So you and your brother, you two grew up watching him go to the office with his briefcase and suits, all of that. And it still didn't make you want to be a lawyer? I have to say my father was quite frankly, one of the coolest guys that I'd ever, that I'd ever <laughs> laid eyes on. 
Okay. And that's not just because he's my dad. That was a consensus of, of other people as well. And he was a savant. He was incredibly intelligent, incredibly analytical. He was very, very reserved. You didn't know what he was thinking, but he had a aura about him that allowed him to take command of the room when he walked in. And he kept a very different schedule. And one of the things I liked about it was that he basically set his own schedule once he got more fully into his private practice. I mean, he did a lot of different things prior to really jumping out on his own. He worked for the city. He worked for other lawyers. He became really good as, as a go-to guy or a shark for hire for other cases and other major mass tort cases in and around the New Orleans area and really built his name. But one of the greatest things was that every day, me and Hunter, we got to see him as that 6'2 savant going to the office with the sweater vest, with the hat. And he worked a lot. And granted, he worked a lot and he always made it home for dinner. And he always came to our games and did a lot of other things with us. He was a great dad. But one of the main things I remember about him professionally was that he was always prepared and he was always demonstrating an acumen in multiple different areas of law at any given time. Okay. And did your father attend Southern University Law Center as well? My father was a 1979 graduate of Southern University Law Center, finished first in his class. Oh, excellent. So, of course, I wasn't going to Harvard or Yale or Loyola or Tulane. I was going to Southern. And then your brother went to Southern as well. He did as well. I believe he was class of 2017. Okay, so a legacy of lawyers. So that's a lot different than what I typically hear when I speak to people for the podcast. A lot of times it's first-generation lawyers. Do you think having your father as a lawyer gave you an advantage? I think in terms of understanding what it took to be a lawyer, it gave me an advantage. I think in terms of understanding the time and effort that you have to spend balancing your life, I had an advantage there. Uh, also, I think in, in terms of coming into the practice, when I came back to New Orleans in 2017 off my second active duty stint, it helped me because I basically stepped into his shoes and they were very big shoes to fill and we have both the same name. So it gave me an advantage there, but nothing can truly prepare you for having to do the work yourself and whether you come from, as people would say, a lineage of lawyers, a good stop or whatnot, you still have to do the work. I still had to go to law school. My brother still had to go to law school. We still both had to take the bar. We still had to do the work. And so what I got used to seeing was somebody who not only knew what they were doing, but enjoyed doing the work as well and enjoyed teaching other people. Okay. I want you to talk about studying for the bar because you did not sign up for a formal course. You studied on your own with a couple of people. What was that like? So everybody usually takes Barbary or Kaplan. And so there was a group of us who, of course, being in law school is kind of like being in college. Most times, if you're full-time day, you're living off student loans, you're broke. Yeah. And so we didn't have the $1,800 to spend taking Barbary that they were taking at LSU, right? So myself, a gentleman by the name of Calvin Rogers is very successful. Bobby Holmes and Lakeitha Walker Holmes, his wife, we all formed our own study group and we called it the No Barbary Study Group. And so what happened was one of the professors at Southern who was a Barbary rep had all of the updated outlines. And from my year to the prior year of the bar being issued, not a whole lot of law changed. Yeah. And so I had the updated outlines one of my classmates who took the year, had taken the bar the year before gave me the old audio tapes from Barbary. And while 
the students were taking Barbary at LSU, we were listening to Barbary, only we were listening in the civil rights room in Southern Law. And so after that, we would do the supplemental bar prep at seven on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We were assigned a faculty fellow to help us with our writing for the bar. And I decided, and Kevin will never tell you this, but I really, really pushed him to take a whole bunch of timed examinations at the end of every study day. And it was a 12 hour grind. I would get up at seven, work out for an hour, come to school at eight, and then I would study till 10 or 11 midnight. And so by the time I had gotten to the bar exam, I had taken at least 60 practice tests from all different codes. And so I felt I at least in some respect, I was prepared for whatever I needed to see in order to at least have some sort of cursory knowledge of what they were asking. Yeah. But we did it on our own and I passed the first time. So you do not need a formal training program. This is no shade to Barbie or Kaplan because they do help people and they do help people with the discipline. But I subscribe to an acute military discipline such that General Colin Powell would be proud of. So, okay. and I didn't have $1,800. So, uh, you know, desperation really does create motivation. Okay. So you work as a municipal prosecutor and you also have time to have a private practice. Would you give us a little more detail about that? So here in the Waters, the municipal prosecution job, it's part-time. So I only have to deal with my docket or whatever dockets I'm covering that particular day. And then because I'm part-time, I'm allowed to have my private criminal defense practice. So essentially, and it's crazy because when I got back from Fort Bragg in 2017, I wound up going to something called Red Mass here in New Orleans at uh, St. Louis Cathedral. And it's where all the judges from the state come and they basically go to a Catholic mass. And I wound up running into Judge Tracy Clemens Gavalier, uh, criminal district court section B. And in the process of getting to know her that day, I found out that she needed a law clerk. And so in eight years into my career at that point, I had already established my own practice, having come from the Office of the Public Defender in East Baton Rouge Parish. And so working for her was essentially like going back to law school. I got to really bone up on some more of the procedural and evidentiary aspects, draft the jury instructions that I had been, been looking at when I was trying cases myself, and then draft procuria and other judgments for my judge and really kind of see behind the scenes what goes into the administration of criminal justice from behind the bench. So it sounds like you kind of fell into a clerkship, weren't even looking for it. You know, I am so blessed that I maintained some level of decorum because I did not know Judge Gabbard was a judge, so I'm glad I didn't say anything stupid. <laughs> you mentioned Fort Bragg, which is a military base. Did you practice law with the military? So in 2012, I think I was in my third year or fourth year out of law school. I just finished working for a, another lawyer that I consider a mentor of mine, Tedrick Nightshare, at his firm. And I joined the public defender's office in Baton Rouge. And I also, right before that, joined the United States Army JAG Corps Reserve. And I did two different active duty stints. In 2014, 2015, I was in division administrative law at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And then came back, went back to the public defender's office. And in 2016, 2017, I went to Fort Bragg 
and was the Brigade Trial Counsel for the 95th Civil Affairs Brigade under First Special Forces Command. And for those that are not familiar with military nomenclature and terminology, Trial Counsel was the Brigade Prosecutor, essentially. Is it anything like we see on TV? Most people see JAG, the show, and that's Navy JAG. Okay. And the JAG Corps, both Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines, I'm, I'm all Army, by the way, who are, there are a lot of different aspects other than UCMJ criminal practice in the military that are all equally important. There's the operational law aspect, there's the fiscal law aspect, which is incredibly boring, but incredibly necessary. Most of the time we'll deal with administrative law and then there's legal assistance. And so typically for a young JAG second lieutenant, you would go to the legal assistance office or to the administrative law office, and then you would transition to a prosecutor or a defense position, which are trial counsel and trial defense services, respectively. Then once you make major, you would become a brigade judge advocate. And then after that, in the successive ranks, you may get a command position or a staff uh, position in one of the brigades or in the command team. So there are a lot more things than what is displayed on TV. But the TV, of course, gets the glitz and glamour. But to be honest with you, if I had to compare military law to civilian law, military law is far more scripted in terms of UCMJ, and there's far less opportunity for you to freelance off of certain things because there's a procedural and evidentiary code for everything. So you kind of know what's going on before it happens, and there's a lot more paperwork on the UCMJ side than there is on the civilian side. But my civilian experience actually played a great factor in my UCMJ practice. Okay. So it's not like NCIS. That's what you're saying? Everybody believes that NCIS and Law and Order and all these other shows are the gospel. And you know what? It is really difficult trying to explain to a jury, <laughs> both criminally and civilly, that the real world is not like a 60-minute show where you can go from the actual crime to the individual being arrested, to all the court proceedings, and then the subsequent uh, denouement and falling action afterwards in 60 minutes. The real thing is very much so long, drawn out, and at times very, very tedious. So no, it's not like it is on TV. It's not like NCIS. So you are my legal mentor, and you used to pride yourself on just telling people you were a janitor. Why did you do that? Why do you think it's important to not broadcast what you do for a living? For me, I've lived my life by four really important words, and that's sincerity, integrity, acumen, and work ethic. And so when you're sincere about who you are with people, I don't have to leave with my profession for you to believe that I am who I say I am. And being a person of integrity, people trust that what comes out of your mouth is what you proclaim it to be. And so for me, when I start there, I always want people to judge me based on who I am, not what I do. And for a long period of time, I really hated wearing a suit. I don't, I don't know how many lawyers would say they really hated wearing a suit, but I really hated wearing a suit only because, you know, the tie gets kind of stuffy sometimes and, you know, the dress shoes can hurt your feet after a while. But getting to the acumen part, I don't have to wear a suit to demonstrate my acumen in a particular area of law. And then your work ethic speaks for yourself. My father, later into his career, did not wear a suit unless he was going to court. His standard uniform, whereas most lawyers, is a suit, right? 
two or three piece, two buttons, whatever you decide to wear fashion wise. His was his favorite pair of black jeans, a nice button up shirt, a leather jacket, a hat, <laughs> and, uh, and glasses. And I thought that was really, really cool because he had his own practice. He had his own building. He was already respected. So I didn't need to break out the big guns of the Joseph A. Banks suit until I was actually standing in front of the judge arguing my position. So you mentioned that you split your time between New Orleans and Baton Rouge. Is that just because your private practice is in Baton Rouge? So in Baton Rouge, I have an office that I consider to be my office. First office I ever opened, it was in my mentor's office building, Teddy Nightshed. And there all my accoutrements on the wall, my degrees. And I have the majority of my criminal defense practice is in Baton Rouge. And because I was law clerking here in New Orleans Parish for so long, I couldn't practice in Orleans Parish where I was clerking. And so the judge graciously allowed me to continue to keep my practice. And so I practiced everywhere else. But East Baton Rouge, West Baton Rouge, where I did most of that. And then I just never got off the office. When my father passed in November of 2016, I was actually here on leave. And then he passed after having a, an operation and, you know, that was a, a really, really rough time. And what was even worse was that I had to go back to Fort Bragg, finish out the mobilization, and then come home. And when I come home, my dad was a great lawyer, but he had a far different and far more robust practice than I did. And so what I had to do was come up to speed on a lot of complex litigation on the fly. And so I spent a lot of time at this desk, reading through trial transcripts, going through the civil code and the code of civil procedure, getting an understanding of the two major mass tour cases that he had left and then the book of business that he had, which was all civil. And to that point, I had really, the only civil stuff I had done was really just some, you know, regular 15, 30, 25, 50 personal injury accident stuff. You know, the majority of my practice was criminal defense and then some entertainment law. So it, it became a crash course in gaining a level and gaining an acumen in something that, you know, my father was really, really good at that I had to step up to the plate to. I, I like it to going straight from high school to the major leagues. Yeah. So you've mentioned entertainment law. This will be a good segue for you to talk about the Cutting Edge Music Conference. What do you do with that? So about 28 years ago, my father and my godfather, Eric Cager, created what is called the Cutting Edge Music Business Conference. And similar to South by Southwest, which I think a lot of people know, and at one point, both the Cutting Edge and South by Southwest were on par with each other. It is a symposium slash CLE where people can come and get information about a variety of different areas of the entertainment world, from screenwriting, film directing, podcasting, like we're doing now. Okay. And understanding just the money aspect of not only just being a talent, but the agency relationships. And then for the lawyers, how to represent entertainment clients, and whether that be music or television or film. And it's just a bunch of different aspects and information that are combined into one conference. And it really gave a lot of people who wanted to not only voice their experiences in the entertainment community, but also give everybody a platform to disseminate the information and give lawyers an opportunity to meet other lawyers who are much more well-versed in that than the average individual is. Because everybody says they want to be an entertainment lawyer, 
And a lot of people mistakenly confuse sports and entertainment for the same thing. And they're completely different. Absolutely. In fact, being an agent has nothing to do with entertainment law at all. So any, any lawyer who also functions as an agent will tell you your agency relationship is completely different from your barrister relationship because there are things in your agency relationship that you can do that are unethical in your, your, your legal capacity. I think I need an agent. I'm going to look into it. You should. You should. Probably either an agent or a manager. And now one of the bigger things that the cutting edge was talking about this past year, and we, of course, due to COVID-19, we were doing everything virtually, was digital streaming, digital downloading, intellectual property that's floating out there in the cloud, and how to monetize that. So situations like the You Are Lawyer podcast, right? You now have a content stream that a lot of people were very unclear five, 10 years ago on how to monetize it and how to trademark, copyright it, because what you're saying is being recorded and you're interviewing somebody else, but now is the content yours or is the content the person you're interviewing, right? And who says what and who does what? And now the cutting edge has really dedicated a whole section to digital streaming, digital downloading, content platforms, and some of the do's and don'ts that occur when people you know, want to just go willy-nilly and start a podcast and then post it somewhere. You want to post it on YouTube. And, and what that means that people start clicking and hitting your page and who owns the content? Is it the platform? Is it you? Is it the person you're interviewing? And there are a lot of people who got very, very confused and some people who got blatantly ripped off not knowing how to catalog that and how to monetize that. Yeah, it's very interesting. I had to learn a lot when I started the podcast. So... Although you had your father as your example, and then you, it sounds like, were the example to your brother, do you have any words of advice for someone who wants to go to law school who didn't have anyone else to look at? I say go. When you graduate from law school, yeah. you are a lawyer. A lot of people don't realize the difference between attorney, which is a certification, and mm-hmm. lawyer, which is a designation having graduated from a, an accredited juris doctoral program. Right. I think a lot of people stumble around in life trying to figure out what it is they want to do and have a lot of ideas. Law school is a gateway into a lot of different areas. You don't even have to practice law per se when you get out of law school. Just get the law degree. You get exposed to a bunch of different people moving in a bunch of different areas. Get exposed to understanding how to read things from an analytical perspective. Get involved with researching a topic, whether it be an area of law or whether it be a person or whether it be a place. And law school is a place where you're going to be able to do that. And I think a lot of people feel that it's too late after a certain age. I went to school and had night classes with people who were in their 50s and 60s who had grandkids. Wow. And it was, and it was, and they were the ones that really took it seriously. You'd be surprised how much a part-time evening person with two kids, a wife of 20 years, and a day job will take those six or eight hours that they're taking at night more seriously than somebody that's going to school full-time day for 15 hours. Yeah. And so it's not a young man or young woman's game. It's anybody's game. You just have to know when you get out that there's going to be a lot of hard work. There's going to be a lot of sleepless nights. There's going to be a lot of anxiety and 
you know, however you decide to counterbalance that. I decide to counterbalance that with exercise and, and rest. Some people may do other things, but you got to know what you're getting into. Do you have anything else you want to share? I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to come on the podcast. I'm very, very happy that a Southern grad is doing this for herself. To anybody else out there who's listening to this particular interview, hopefully, if you're thinking about going to law school and kind of on the fence, take a good, hard look at yourself in the mirror. Tell yourself you can do it. So be sincere, be integral. And seek out a legal mentor who will give you all the old notes and schedules and outlines. That too. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to You Are a Lawyer. While you are here, subscribe to the show, leave a rating, and tell a friend about this episode. New episodes are released every other Thursday. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Bye. <laughs>